Welcome to the Heal Podcast for all things related to Lyme disease and other chronic illnesses. I'm Mimi McLean, Mama Five, founder of Lyme 360 and a Lyme warrior. Tune in each week to hear from doctors, health practitioners, and experts to hear about their treatments, struggles, and triumphs to help you on your healing journey. I'm here to heal with you. Hi, welcome back to the Heal Podcast. This is Mimi, and today we have Dr. Todd Medeiros. He is the founder and medical director of Marin Natural Medicine Clinic in Marin County in Northern California. He specializes in treatment of complex chronic illnesses caused by Lyme disease. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, and I'm excited to talk with you today. I love the fact that you are treating chronic Lyme like the complex cases, you know, and so persistent Lyme, like that's right up my alley. And I think there's a lot of people that have been following and listening in that are in the same boat I am where they've been trying everything and hopping around from doctor to doctor. And, and we know we have Lyme, but it's like, nothing's kind of working. And so, and we all have different, obviously symptoms, but what is that? Right. So I'm excited to talk to you today to kind of try to peel back and figure out what that perfect storm is. And if there's a way to actually what you're doing for your patients to help right. us. So thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thank you for having me. What originally got you into like specializing in Lyme? Yeah. You know, it was probably like Lyme disease. It was a perfect storm where I remember seeing a patient. I had sort of a general practice at the time of naturopathic practice, which is kind of like what we refer to as functional medicine now, treating people with chronic fatigue and hormonal issues, thyroid issues, digestive issues. And I've seen a new patient who had in his stack of labs, he had an Igenix Lyme test that someone had ordered. And he had actually never reviewed the results with a practitioner because I think this was back when the uh, Igenix results were pretty difficult to interpret and read and people would look at him and kind of scratch their head and <laughs> really, is this positive or not? And so anyhow, I, he showed me the result. He asked if it could be a contributor to his fatigue. And at the time I was pretty Lyme illiterate and I actually kind of gave that knee jerk response that you hear too often about Igenix testing and being, you know, everyone's positive for Igenix. And what I now realize is that's not the case, but I told him I didn't know and I was going to find out. And around the same time, a colleague of mine, someone I knew in the medical industry had told me about a Lyme conference in San Diego. And she said, you really, you really should attend this. It's a bigger deal. We know very little about it right now and more and more cases on the rise. So I ended up flying down to this conference and it was, it was great. We had guys like Joe Briscano and Richard Horowitz and some of the top Lyme experts in the world, at the, or at least in the U.S. at the time. In this small room, there was 30 of us, I think, in attendance. And so I attended the conference and then it really actually I hit close to home when we found a tick attached to my two-year-old daughter. So I have three kids and my daughter's our middle child. She was, we had been hiking with her. She was in a backpack and we got home and, and we were actually changing her diaper and found the tick inside of her diaper of all places. And so it's that kind of perfect sort of confluence within months of all these things sort of coming together. And that was my intro to the tick. Now, did you put her on antibiotics right away, your daughter, when you found it on her? 
You know, we we didn't because at the time it was still sort of foreign. We weren't sure how long the tick had been attached. There was a lot of unknowns. I consulted with some people and we put her on antimicrobial herbs at the time. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, she ended up having another tick bite when she was six years old. So she's she's now had two tick bites where neither one of our sons have had tick bites. She tested very positive for Lyme and I think three co-infections. Oh, she did. Uh, yeah, yeah. At one point, she was really positive, and at this point, she's she's negative and is doing quite well. Yeah, she's she's doing really well. And that but was from the antimicrobials, and because she's young. Well, kind of she's dry. had a variety of treatments over the years, but mm-hmm. but primarily herbal. Yeah, she didn't yeah. do anything, and I think yeah. it caught it early enough. If someone were to ask you right now, like, "Hey, I just got bit by a tick." And it was attached and maybe it's on for 24 hours. Maybe it was less. Would you recommend antibiotics? Yeah. The tick, the tick bite scenario is always interesting. The perfect scenario is when someone actually sees a tick because sometimes people come in and they say, I, I found this bump or this lesion. We have been hiking, but we're not sure if it was a tick. If you have the tick, of course you can, in that, in that case, have it tested. I like, I have patients send it to UMass. They have a tick testing program called tick report and I have them do the full panel test it for 23 different viruses, bacteria, parasites. And then that's helpful because they turn the results around in like three days. But to answer your question, I typically, if someone has found a tick, if they think it's been attached for any duration greater than a couple hours, because we know transmission can occur pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Some studies that show definitely you know, less than a couple hours transmission can occur. Now, I always say the longer it's been attached, rate of transmission goes up, but you're not, it's not zero at even 15 minutes, right? There's the possibility that transmission mm-hmm. can occur. So I typically do prescribe antibiotics when someone has had a tick attached. And it's a couple of weeks, right? Some people, some doctors only want to give you like three days and you're like, yeah. no, 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 yeah, <laughs> that's no. not going to cut it. I usually write a minimum of 28 days. 28 days. Yeah. I, I kind of, that's, that's definitely been one of my biggest regrets of not taking that. Cause I feel like common sense, right. If it broke the skin, yeah. chances are, if it's, it broke the skin, yeah. it went into your bloodstream. So the chances are you probably have something, but you yeah. brought up another really good point was that you were hiking in California. Yeah. Right. And, and so you live in California. So, yeah. so yeah, and most doctors don't think of that like, Oh, Lyme, California, they think Connecticut. East Coast. So yeah. you, you brought up a good point that I would love for you to talk about is how if even if you're on the West Coast or anywhere in the United States at this point, it should be something in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you know the, the general party line is that Lyme doesn't exist on the West Coast. And we still hear that from other, you know, from healthcare providers. Uh, even, you know, we're close to university hospitals in San Francisco and down in the peninsula and they have patients, I'll see patients that mention a tick bite. And I think there's just a lack of awareness and understanding the research that's out there. We know that Lyme has been in California for, well, we know there were people studying ticks back in the early 70s. And Bob Lane at UC Berkeley has been studying ticks for his whole career in Northern California and finding pathogens within these ticks. He's looked at um, the whole, all the co-infections and ticks. And, and so, you know, Lyme has existed in California since, well, right around the same time they discovered it in Lyme, Connecticut. But again, it's the, the lack of awareness here, um, you know, doesn't lead physicians to 
think about treating, or if they do, uh, a patient might get a single dose of doxycycline, maybe a week if they're lucky. And then if symptoms persist, it's typically not, they're not thinking Lyme was the cause of their continued symptoms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I would assume that most patients who come to you who have persistent Lyme obviously have been to other doctors before they get to you. Yeah, there's a couple different patient types. There's I see patients that, that maybe come here because they've been chronically ill for a number of years. They've seen multiple doctors. They may or may not have Lyme disease. They, you know, I, I might see them because they might suspect they have Lyme or they have another diagnosis and they want to rule out Lyme. And then I have other people that know they, they test positive for Lyme disease or someone, maybe a practitioner orders a test. They are, they are positive for Lyme, but that practitioner doesn't treat Lyme disease. So they come to me for my expertise. And then there's people that have been in the Lyme world for a number of years and they're just not getting better. And I'm maybe their third or fourth Lyme literate doctor that they've seen. So they kind of see a whole variety of people. Yeah. So when, when they do come to you, is there like, have you found that there's kind of like, well, obviously you have a set protocol, like what you go through, but do, do you find that the reason why the ones who are persistently not getting better is, is the same reason or is there, is they all kind of have different reasons? Yeah. I mean, I think most people have a variety of reasons why they're not getting better. And it's not just that the, maybe the infection has persisted. It could be that they have other concomitant issues or exposures that, that are not part of the picture or haven't been picked up yet. You know, I tend to think about other environmental exposures, things like mold, for example. Mold can be a big problem with Lyme disease. And, you know, I, I tend to believe that if mold is there and, and hasn't been diagnosed or treated, then it's very, very difficult to treat Lyme. So then the, the infections persist and we maybe chalk it up as either it's just really difficult infection to treat or, you know, the antibiotics are not good enough. There's a lot of reasons that people will give, but it could be that there's other undiagnosed conditions or exposures that are suppressing the immune system or creating the same symptoms. Uh, I remember hearing uh, Joe Brewer, who's an infectious disease doctor from Oklahoma. He spoke at an ILADS conference in 2013. And I remember looking at the line of speakers over the weekend, and it was, you know, every most talks are centered around Lyme disease. And Dr. Brewer was speaking about mold. And I thought, well, why is there a, someone, you know, why is there a doctor here talking about mold at a Lyme conference? Well, you know, it turns out mold causes a lot of the same symptoms. So in those patients where their symptoms do persist, I think, you know, there's the possibility they either have, they haven't been fully or properly evaluated. They could have other issues. They might not have all been tested for all co-infections. That could be part of it as well. You know, treatments have been limited with for Lyme disease, and in recent years, we have newer studies coming out looking at persister or stationary phase Lyme, and that's that's been really insightful to see the studies where they can do these drug screens or herbal medicine screens and determine what medications are most effective. That's really helpful. But the patients that have persistent symptoms, everyone's a little bit different, and you have to figure out exactly why they're not getting better? Is it they haven't been properly evaluated or fully tested for these other issues? Or is it the treatments that they've failed? It's difficult, right? I mean, that's why there's so many people that suffer from these chronic, you know, tick-borne infections. Mm -hmm. And what are typically your your go-to treatments for people with persistent Lyme? Well, you know, everyone is a little bit different, sort of 
depending on what the findings are from our initial intake, I tend to run a lot of tests up front to, you know, not miss anything. Because if you do, if you miss that one or even two positive tests, someone could spin their wheels for another six months to a year because something went undiagnosed. So what I tend to do is, you know, cast a broad net, see what comes back on all these tests, and then come up with a specific protocols to treat whatever the findings are. And I, I call it, you know, being specific and intentional about what we're doing, right? And people come in with a shopping bag full of supplements and yeah, I know. And, um, <laughs> and they'll put them out on the desk and, and I'll ask them, well, why are you, why are you taking this one? And they say, well, I don't really know. And it's, you know, something that's very nonspecific. They're, and, and they're, you know, sometimes when someone has fatigue, we just say, well, here, take these things can be helpful for fatigue. But ultimately, I feel like, you know, a lot of times people end up treating their symptoms and it's sort of, or you're chasing symptoms. It's like a dog chasing his tail. Mm-hmm. And so for my sanity and for the patient's sanity, I like to uh, be specific and intentional about what we're treating. Okay. These, this is what we've found on testing. These are the therapies or treatments we're going to use for this issue or this condition and, and kind of work through it systematically and not, you know, I think a lot of times it's, it's sort of, you know, we go, well, that's not working. That's, throw that out the window and try this whole new protocol that I heard can work really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, is there a pecking order that you do? Like, okay, like say if they come back like with mold or they come back with parasites or they come back with heavy metals or their gut, like, and then you get to Lyme or do you kind of like do them all at once or do you wait? Is there like a, an order? Yeah, it's a really good question because, and again, I think everyone's a little bit different, right? And the really sensitive patient, you can't go after everything at the same time. Otherwise that'll just, they'll crash, they'll go down and feel worse than they did before treatment. So for the sensitive patients, like mast cell activation syndrome is a great example. People that have untreated, um, we call it MCAS, if it's untreated or not well-treated, then they're going to react to almost everything that you put them on. It's like anything that sets off their immune system that much more is going to trigger this mast cell activation and they're going to be symptomatic and it just, you know, we become a vicious cycle. So for some people, we have to stabilize the mast cell. For other people that have digestive issues, I have to we'll do proper testing for you know ruling out things like SIBO or doing a, a comprehensive stool test and address gut-related issues first because you probably know that 80% of your immune system is around your gut. Mm-hmm. And if this isn't working well, then your immune system is going to be hyper-reactive and drive inflammation. If they have toxicities like heavy metals or mold, I tend to want to address that first because that can be a burden on the immune system, suppress the immune system. And again, you could initiate some treatments for tick-borne infections, but ultimately you have to, you know, it's important to get rid of the toxic burden or reduce it at least before maybe going after the infections. And then some people you can, if they have a strong enough constitution, you can address, maybe go after it all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now talk to me about the MCAS or the mast cell activation syndrome. Now that typically happens. I think that's what's happening to me. Cause like all of a sudden, like maybe a year ago, two years ago, I started getting massive hives yep. randomly. Like if it's cold, I'm walking through the freezer <laughs> section at Costco, or it could yep. just be like the most random reasons why I get it. But, and then I started reading about it, even though I keep doing the test and it keeps coming back negative. I keep getting massive highs for no reason. And I'm wondering why is it, I guess it 
the Lyme or chronic Lyme starts triggering this mast cell syndrome, what I'm reading about? Yeah. 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 It's, um, you made a couple of great points there. And I think it's all, it's all really common. Number one, you know, let's talk about the causes of mast cell activation syndrome. There's, there's a group of physicians here in the U S and definitely internationally as well that really focus on mast cell activation syndrome. And, And I think sometimes it's thought of as the end all be all. That's what they have. We're going to treat that condition and it should resolve your symptoms. And for some people, that may be the case. There can be some congenital predisposition, but when patients also have these chronic infections or, or environmental exposures like mold, those tend to be a driving force behind the mast cell activation. So the mast cell is sort of, you know, it's a result of, as opposed to the primary issue. And there are a lot of different triggers to it. It, You know, stress and the stress hormones are known to trigger mast cell activation. And that's been pretty well studied. There's there's a lot of great research on mast cell activation syndrome. Temperature changes, like you said, you can, you know, heat sometimes does it. There's a variety of things from physical trauma. I wrote an article about mast cell activation. I try to list all all the known triggers. And then you brought up a good point about testing. You said every time I've tested, it comes back negative. And, and that's been a big, I think, a limitation with getting a proper diagnosis because the testing is, is very, well, the specimens, when blood is drawn, require special handling. They, they all need to be chilled or frozen. And, it's, and so I've actually created a, I have a handout I give patients to take to, I use Quest primarily for these markers. Um, and they give it to the phlebotomist and I highlight all the, the tubes that need to be drawn and how they need to be handled because if they are the temperature of the blood, you know, drops to room temperature, then it's going to render the, the test basically mm-hmm. false negative. And so I think a lot of physicians end up not testing because the testing is so insensitive or poor. However, it's, I think, really important to get you know, an accurate test. Dr. Larry Afrin, I've, I've learned a lot from over the years, and he'll say out of the eight markers we run, if, if we get a one positive marker, I think of it like a home run. And if I get two or more positive markers, then it's a grand slam. And then I put people on treatment that are, you know, that's specific to the mast cell, look, look for their response. And then ultimately, I may retest them down the road if they're not responding to treatment. I, I want to know... Mm-hmm. Like, is this improving the objective lab markers? Mm-hmm. Can the um, treatment actually reverse the syndrome? Like, can you get rid of it, or is that something you have forever? Yeah. I, again, I think if you're if you can address the underlying cause to the mast cell activation, then your people are going to have better success. And I know Lyme physicians that say the same thing. They say, well, if you treat the Lyme, the mast cell resolves, and it's you. You really have to focus. But in the interim, you have to also stabilize or treat the mast cell activation to help the patient be more comfortable to, you know, can reduce symptoms. And again, there may be this propensity for the mast cells to degranulate. The tricky thing about mast cells is, are these, everyone knows about histamine because of allergies, but mast cells contain about a hundred chemical mediators. So every time a mast cell releases their, their contents, we say, those chemical mediators circulate throughout the body and they can cause symptoms from the head all the way down to the, the feet and everything in between. And so brain fog, anxiety, depression, shortness of breath, 
bladder irritability. You know, people get diagnosed with interstitial cystitis a lot and, and, and then maybe a histamine issue, mm. heartburn, nausea. There's a variety of symptoms. And subjectively, if someone says, oh, I get, I get flush all the time, I you know, heat up and I can look in the mirror and I'm red or I break out in hives or just take a fingernail and scratch your inner arm, wait a minute. And if you see a red streak there, that's a histamine reaction. It's called dermatographism. So there's a couple of ways to tell. And, mm-hmm. and again, I think a lot of times physicians go, well, you probably have it here. We'll put you on some quercetin. But for some of my patients, they need, they need a little bit more than, than that. Right. Now, can you talk about also, I see that you use the low-dose immunotherapy in your practice? Yeah. Low-dose immunotherapy was sort of a, a spinoff of low-dose allergy therapy. This has been used here in the United States for about probably 30 years uh, at this point. And low-dose allergy therapy, are, both therapies are, are basically uh, very dilute antigens that we give patients, almost like an allergy shot you'd get from a traditional allergist, but in lower doses. And we can use these antigens, whether they're environmental or in the case of low-dose immunotherapy, these are microbes and pathogens that have been diluted and typically administered in a little shot under the skin although they can be administered sublingually. And Ty Vincent pioneered the work of the low-dose immunotherapy, so using these antigens, different viruses, bacteria, parasites, etc. And the goal is to, well, there's a belief that some chronic persistent conditions are really just an immune response, sort of an inappropriate or persistent immune response to something that the immune system shouldn't be responding to. And so the LDI and LDA are designed to help downregulate that immune response. It's almost like a hyperreactive immune response. And if you can sort of turn the noise down a little, then it can help resolve symptoms. With Lyme in particular, I have an antigen mix that has, I think, 74 species of Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, Ehrlichian, Anaplasma. And I find that it can be effective helping with um, mostly pain-related symptoms with Mm -hmm. Lyme disease. Haven't seen someone's energy improve, for example, from using LDI in a Lyme patient. But it can downregulate the pain, um, potentially brain fog, anything that's that's more directly related to inflammation from the infections. Right. Yeah. And then I saw you also use ozone therapy. We do, yep. Do you tend to use that for most patients as well? I wouldn't say most, but for some patients where it's indicated, well, I use ozone therapy. We, we use the, the 10 pass ozone. So it's a, mm-hmm. a I love higher those. dose. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a higher dose than traditional. It's called major autologous hemotherapy. And, you know, ozone's been studied primarily the, the research comes out of Europe, but there's a lot of studies showing that they're effective. Ozone's effective at treating viruses and bacteria, mm-hmm. downregulating inflammation, so helping with cytokines. And then there's some, you know, some evidence that it can support mitochondrial function, so helping with fatigue. And so I will use it in my patients that are maybe have worse symptoms and, and might be reacting to other medications. You know, ozone's a gas. And people tend, they can have a Herxheimer reaction from killing off the infections, mm-hmm. but they tend not to, they're not going to develop an immune reaction to ozone 
like they might to say an antibiotic or an herb. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I found ozone quite effective in a lot of my patients and we treated autoimmune conditions with it too. And Right. And can you get the same kind of benefit? Obviously it's not going to be as intense, but the same benefit by doing ozone either through rectally or through the ear? Yeah, it's a little easier to do rectal ozone or auricular ozone, but you know, unfortunately with well, with something like 10 pass ozone, we're we're ozonating 200 milliliters of blood each pass. And if if we do 10 passes, that's quite a bit of uh, ozone that comes into direct contact with the blood. Whereas rectal ozone, although you do have a great blood supply in the rectum, you know, I don't think the effects are quite the same. The upside of doing something like rectal ozone is you can do it every day at home. You don't need great veins. You don't need to go to the doctor. We don't do it in patients more than once a week. And so, yeah, home devices can be helpful. Whether or not it, you know, eradicates chronic infections, I think it's to be determined. Are there negative effects to the ozone doing it like rectally? Is it like, because I've heard people are like, well, it's actually an antioxidant, which is not great. And especially if you're dealing with chronic illness, is there, is there a negative to that? Well, it's a pro-oxidant. It's, it's a oxidative therapy, just like something like a high dose of vitamin C is. And the oxidative effect is what purportedly kills these infections. I would say it's pretty benign therapy with very few side effects or downsides to using, you know, to mm-hmm. ozone. So most people tend to tolerate it pretty well. Okay. Now your patients, are most of them in person or do you do like video or patients from across the country? Pre-COVID, we mostly saw people in person. Although I've been doing video consults with patients for years that live out of the, out of the area or out of the state. And then since COVID hit, we, we didn't see patients in person for, for a couple months. And at this point, our patients are either, you know, in person, on the phone, or in video. But I treat patients from you know, all across the mm-hmm. country, so those patients tend not to. They don't have to fly to to California to see me. That's good. And then you're able to help them, even though they're not by you for like the ozone therapy or the LDI. That's right. We sometimes mail LDIs, and of course, you know, medications can be prescribed in their home state. Tests can be perform blood draws performed in their home state. We send test kits that need that we have here that need to be collected at their residence. And but for the most part we can navigate around, you know, they just can't do IV therapies essentially. What other you mentioned that you would give antibiotics when someone is bit. Do you also prescribe antibiotics to patients through their journey? And I know there's probably some that you do or don't, or, and I'd just love to know your take on that. Yeah, I'm one yeah. of those people, I've done it all. Like I am not, like I tell people when they ask my opinion or whatever, I'm like, I am not here to judge. I've done everything and anything to try to get better and you can't yeah. know anybody's situation. So it's like, yeah. so I'm just curious. You know, again, it's one of those individual case scenarios where some people, you know, can respond favorably to antibiotics uh, orally. You know, for years I used oral antibiotics and, you know, we were, prescribing at least two antibiotics, if not, you know, some doctors were doing three, four, even five antibiotics at a time. I once saw a patient who saw a doc in New York who had him on nine antibiotics at one time. That must've been a doctor I went to. I was on an (laughs) IV and I had six to nine rotating. (laughs) I couldn't, I was scratching my head. And ironically- I did feel better though. I did feel better (laughs) before I got my sepsis. I actually said for the five months I was doing or four months I was doing, I I did feel good, but I didn't make it to the end. You got sepsis while on six antibiotics? 
Yeah, I had a, I had a, a port, port like that was going directly into my heart and it got infected. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have used orals and 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 that was a big part of my practice. I've always used them in conjunction with other therapies. But if I had someone on, you know, oral antibiotics, I might also have them on an herbal formula for one of the co-infections. And it, you know, again, it's almost like creating a sort of the perfect treatment plan for that particular patient. Mm-hmm. And but what I would notice or begin to notice over time was someone might feel better while they're on the antibiotic. And I noticed this with Bartonella a lot, using something like rifampin and clarithromycin, which is a common regimen for Bartonella. And they'd feel good on the two antibiotics. And, and then after a period of time, we'd say, okay, well, let's, you know, let's retest you. And why don't you take a break off the antibiotics while we're waiting for your results? And as soon as they'd stop or within weeks of stopping the antibiotics, you know, a lot of their symptoms would return. And so what we now know from research is that a lot of these antibiotics work on the bacteria when they're in their growing phase or what's called mm-hmm. the log phase, but they're not very effective in this stationary phase. And so, you know, that's been the coolest findings in the last couple of years is when, you know, the researchers at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Zhang and his team have been looking at using different therapies to treat this, the stationary phase of, of Lyme disease and Babesia and Bartonella. And so I, I, you know, I think that's one of the shortcomings of the antibiotics is they're not that effective at this stationary and persister phase. Um, I do use IV antibiotics in my practice. We tend to pulse the IV antibiotics, and so it's not a daily administration, and that can help reduce some of the resistance to the medication. And I sometimes, you know, I might do that in the beginning of treatment with someone, especially if they have a lot of neurological symptoms and seeing really great things happen with patients. Um, you know, some of the, again, this newer research that's coming out of Johns Hopkins using like the essential oils for these, the stationary phase of Lyme and Babesia and Bartonella, that's really promising. And I've been using a lot more of those in my practice. I'm also really excited about methylene blue, which there's, been a couple of studies now on both Lyme and Bartonella treating the stationary face of Bartonella with methylene blue, either alone or in conjunction with an oral antibiotic. And, mm-hmm. you know, the research is evolving and we're learning more and the medications aren't perfect. I mean, none of these yeah. antibiotics have been, were ever developed to treat Lyme disease or the co-infections. We're kind of, yeah. We borrow them from other infections. <laughs> Do you prescribe distillifrom? We've used it a little with patients. I think if I can, my whole premise and the way I approach things is if if we can identify, you know, everything that is causing someone's symptoms, contributing to their disease state, and address the collateral effects, then you know I find I don't have to use these higher risk therapies and disulfiram is pretty benign people tolerate it well you know dapsone had a lot has a lot more side effects and a little more difficult to manage with patients and the goal is not to make the patient worse and but you know there for some patients they do respond really well and it doesn't doesn't you know i've also seen patients that were on disulfiram that you know now have symptoms that started on the disulfiram and they haven't resolved since stopping the disulfiram. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, everyone's a little bit different, but it is a promising mm-hmm. therapy and that came from some of these drug screens that they've been able to do at um, Johns Hopkins to, to see what's most effective against the bacteria. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if there is somebody um, who is listening right now and they either are waiting to get into a Lyme literate doctor or don't have the financial means to do it, mm-hmm. is there any advice that you could give them at home that they could do at home to help them get feel better or get better? Yeah. You know, I think always in the interest of trying to treat the specific underlying cause or causes of someone's issue, you really have to know what you're dealing with. And that's, that's tricky. That's, that's where the expense comes in is, is the testing. I mean, right. If first the line panel I run on my patients at the very first visit is, um, you know, it's almost $1,600. And is that the hygienics? Yeah, that's, that's primary, primarily the lab I use. And I, there's a panel called TBD number four that I use with all my patients. Cause I want to see the tick-borne relapsing fever group that panel includes Bartonella Western blot, which has been really, I've, I've found to be really helpful clinically because historically Bartonella testing hasn't been very good and patients would have all the classic symptoms of Bartonella and we'd test them and they'd come back negative. And now the, the new Bartonella Western blot's been really accurate. So you, you really have to start with that proper diagnosis to direct the treatment. Mm-hmm. There's some testing assistance programs out there for patients so they can, if they can't afford testing. There, there are some resources out there. I'm sure if they searched around on the internet, they can find them. And then, you know, with that, with that information, that's how you would guide treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's no like typical, like, I guess you, unless you, I guess they, maybe they do know they have Lyme. Is there any kind of like, is it biocidin or is there any kind of like go-to like herbals or something they can take that they can buy somewhere. Yeah, there's there's a lot of great herbs out there that are effective at treating Lyme. There's formulas that I tend to use, things like the Byron White formulas and Beyond Balance Mm -hmm. formulas. There's the herbs that Stephen Buhner recommends in his books. uh, And Johns Hopkins in one of their studies last year looked at, you know, cryptolepsis and and, uh, Japanese knotweed were really effective at treating Lyme. So people can, you know, those are things people can... uh, can play with to see if they help, but I, I'm hesitant to make, I think it starts with an yeah. accurate diagnosis. And Until you happens, figure out like you definitely have that and you don't have mold yeah. and you don't have this, and you don't have that. Right. I have a random off. question. Do you think, cause this is like, do you think Lyme is transmitted sexually? <laughs> That's a, well, it's a loaded question. I'm sorry. I'm it's, just curious it's not, it's you like, know, there was a study that came out, I think in 2015 and, you know, I initially we were all kind of, I think people were concerned about it, both Lyme treating physicians and patients were concerned that they were reinfecting their partners. And, you know, the argument is you can have a patient that's, that has symptoms, test positive for Lyme or co-infections, and we run a test on the, on the spouse just because we want to make sure they don't have it too. And they do test positive, but they don't have any symptoms at all. And, you know, I know physicians that would treat that. And I don't, I think that could be a disservice. Uh, you know, the, we're looking mm-hmm. at using antibody tests here. And we have to remember that that's what we call an indirect test. So we're looking at the immune system to see if the immune system has seen the infection. So it's, it's indirect. And because you've had an exposure doesn't necessarily mean it's an active infection. You could, you could have formed antibodies, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's an active infection. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that it can't create problems down the road if someone, you know, is under increased stress or they have a surgery or, you know, something else. They get, you know, exposed to mold and it triggers the onset. But 
I've also heard physicians say that the volume that you might see of a Lyme spirochete in semen or vaginal secretions is not significant enough and the route of transmission doesn't necessarily cause an infection. So well, that's good. I think that's the big unknown. Yeah. The study was small. It was, I think, only maybe four couples that they used. Yeah. Six couples. Well, because it's in the same family of like a syphilis, at least some of the co-infections, right. Are, right? Right. And yeah, I think that's where the excitement came from was Like if that's the case, then how is it not in that same kind of thing? And then do you look at the MTHFR, like the mutations at all, as far as treating people? Is that something that's of significance to you? You know, MTHFR, I remember when it first, everyone sort of first came aware of it and it was really exciting. And we kind of thought that it was going to cure everybody if we figured out what their mutations were and their their whole profile. And, you know, it turns out that it, it really can be helpful in how you maybe support someone. But ultimately, you know, a lot of people have these genetic polymorphisms and mutations. And, and a lot of the, the study of what we call epigenetics is, is proven to be more, more of an interest, right? And epigenetics is sort of the genetic, how the genes express themselves. So things like you know, diet and lifestyle and stress management and proper sleep all influence the genetic expression and, and that's mm-hmm. a little bit more important. You know, a, a lot of people have MTHFR mutations that don't have any symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I think ultimately it goes back to the lifestyle and, and the epigenetic right. influence. Right, right. So is there anything we haven't touched on at this point? Because I feel like we've covered so much ground. Like anything that we haven't touched on that you're like, okay, this is something that I cover in my practice that we should talk about. We covered a lot. We, um, you know, I, I, again, I think it's really important that people take a, if they can, if they have the means to, to cast a broad net, get an accurate diagnosis or diagnoses, because it's, in the words of Richard Horowitz, it's like the having 15 tacks in your foot. And if you identify one or two, um, and I see people like that a lot, their treatments have been focused on the Lyme and they haven't looked at anything else. Well, if they have 14 other tacks in their foot, they're not going to get better. So you really have to do some really good testing up front, get a proper diagnosis, and then use therapies that are that are really effective at treating those whatever's diagnosed. Of course, mm-hmm. that's easier said than done, but I think if you're strategic about it, it's not just sort of off the cuff willy-nilly, but if you're very strategic about how you go about treating complex, we like to call it complex chronic illness, because it's rarely one thing. And if, if you if you follow that systematic approach, the next thing you know, you look back and you go, wow, you know, it's, we're six, eight months or a year in a treatment and, and the patient's doing a whole lot better. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's, I describe it to my patients. It's like we're trying to turn the Titanic sometimes and it takes time. Yeah. And, and they have to stay patient and, you know, do all their lifestyle things like good diet and, you know, everything else they have in, in their control. But ultimately, in, we're in California, I think you and I both are. And so we know that there's great resources here, but there's a lot of people in the middle of the country that don't have great resources. And that's, mm-hmm. that's really difficult. So, you know, it starts with awareness. If, if people think they have Lyme disease, they should get properly tested. You know, so they need to you know, find a physician they can work with and get the proper testing done up front. And then that, that really helps. It's like the roadmap. 
Right. And so you, I mean, you're a Lyme literate doctor, but you're different than a Lyme literate doctor. Cause I feel like most Lyme literate doctors, like the real intense one, like they're just very heavy antibiotics right off the bat. Right. What is like your kind of like, what is that Lyme doctor? That's like, not just heavy, not antibiotic. heavy antibiotic Lyme doctor. Um, yeah. <laughs> they'll use it when they I'm have to, but they're also like the whole person, like what, what is that called? Yeah. Like if someone wants to research like and find a doctor like you where they live, what are they looking for? Yeah, um, that's, I'm glad that's funny you put it that way. And it's, I, I think that's shifting a lot. I really do. I see more and more physicians that are treating Lyme disease that are not just focused on the bug. And it's really, for a lot of people, it's not, you, you know, a classic scenario is someone, maybe they grew up on the East Coast where they potentially had an exposure, but they've been out. I see them out here in California and they've been out West for 20 years, but a couple of years ago, they, something stressful, major happened, car accident, a surgery, death, divorce, whatever. And all of a sudden they become symptomatic and it's a myriad of symptoms, right? It, it's like a progression. And then someone runs a Lyme test and they think, aha, we figured it out. You have, you have Lyme disease. Well, hold on a minute. If you were bit 20 years ago and it's surfacing now, what else has occurred? So there's a lot of immune dysfunction that happens with Lyme mm-hmm. disease. Dr. Moziani, who's on the East Coast, he, he likes to say it's, you know, potentially we're dealing with more of a, a host response condition than a, uh, you know, a, an infection, meaning it's how the person's body is responding to that infection is really what's driving the symptoms. So it's this immune dysfunction that happens. And, you know, a lot of these therapies we discussed, whether it's LDI or, I use a lot of what's called low-dose naltrexone in my practice. That's LDN, things like turmeric and glutathione. All of those help to modulate the immune system. And then, of course, you have to remove anything else that's contributed to that total burden. You know, people, mm-hmm. it's like a bucket. When you're, Once your bucket's full, and then, you know, mm-hmm. someone will say, yeah, you know, I'm, I do okay, but then I have a little bit of, of gluten or I get stressed out and it's like their bucket spills over. Well, let's focus on reducing that bucket so they have more tolerance. What's already in the bucket? And then people don't have to tiptoe around in their, in their lives. Right? They're, they, people should be able to There's more leeway. do most things and not you know, react. So okay. it's a long way of answering your question about... <laughs> again, more and more physicians. There's a group, I'm, I'm a member of an organization called the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness, ISEAI.org, I believe is their website. And so it's a group of physicians. A lot of us treat mold and some of us also treat infections and some of us are also aware of other environmental factors like heavy metals and pesticides and herbicides and things we're exposed to in the environment. I think if you can overlap those three environmental exposures, you really cover a lot of bases. Yeah. I never heard about that group. That's great. I mean, one of my doctors said it to me before, and I kind of like this analogy too. He's like, even if you've gotten rid of the lime, you have to think of lime as almost like the termites that went into a house. Like it's kind of wreaked havoc on your body. So at this point now, it's like repairing the damage that those, that lime did to your body, like how a termite did to a house. Like how it ate all the wood. Now you got to have to like figure out where that is and correct it. So I, I, I don't know if that's a correct analogy, but. It's a great analogy. And I, I would agree a hundred percent. 
sometimes I'll say you can remove the bug, but the, the immune response can persist or the collateral damage that's occurred, whether it's, you know, oxidative damage or there's this concept of something what's called cell danger response that Dr. Robert Naviau coined. And cell danger response is sort of when the cell, you know, the cells sort of shut down when they sense stressors. And so that contributes to chronic fatigue and mitochondrial dysfunction. And again, you can remove that threat, you can remove the infection, but the cell danger response can persist or the immune dysfunction can persist in people. And that's why, you know, it can be a disservice to stay on antibiotics for, you know, see people that have been antibiotics for, you know, five, six, seven years, almost nonstop. And at that point, what are you really doing? Are you, you know, you might keep the antigenic load low enough. So maybe it's maybe preventing symptoms from manifesting, but you're not getting rid of the infection by any means. Mm -hmm. So it, you, you really do have to repair the body after as well. It's not just about killing the bug. It's also mm -hmm. about healing up and repairing tissue. And for some people, it's, it, you know, they have, it's trauma. They might have, there's this whole concept of, of limbic system injury, right? People that have had past trauma. And for some of people that have limbic injury, nothing helps them get better. And, and they, they probably mm -hmm. won't get better until they do some sort of, limbic retraining type of program that what do you re what recommend for that there's a couple out there that commonly get used in our world i think you know annie hopper's program dnrs a mm -hmm. lot of patients have had good success with and and then ashok gupta has a program as well the gupta program and both of those can be quite effective i have seen patients that have responded favorably to ketamine too so there's a, there's a couple different routes to do it i've also seeing people have really strong adverse reactions to ketamine too. So, and maybe yeah. it wasn't administered properly. That's part of, you know, ketamine has to be done, done properly. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I've learned so yeah. much. What's the website that anybody can come find you? My site where I write most of my articles is at drtodmaderis.com. So it's D-R-T-O-D-D-M-A-D-E-R-I-S.com. And then through that site, it links to my, my clinic site, which is, which is okay. But all the articles I've written, whether it's about mast cell or mold, mm -hmm. are on the drtodmanaris.com. We're just, yeah, I love that because you have great newsletters, and that's how I found yours through your uh, newsletters that you were sending out. Yeah, again, it's, it's about awareness. And the more people that are aware, the bigger impact we're going to have. And then, you know, everything unfolds from there. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting with this COVID too, to see how the symptoms, their ongoing symptoms, if they're going to kind of parallel. You know, I just read something this morning, a paper was, it's in preprint right now, but it's going to be published and they just discovered that, you know, COVID is, is triggering autoantibody response. And maybe that's what we're seeing in the long haulers. Mm -hmm. So COVID's been really, you know, I think it's opened up eyes for the mm -hmm. medical and scientific community about chronic Lyme disease and how other infections can persist as well. So it's, we've learned a lot and cytokine storms and hypercoagulation and, and persistent yeah. post-infectious fatigue. So there could be a silver lining for the Lyme community. Yeah, because there's a lot of similarities. So you got to wonder. Much so. Yep, that's right. Yeah.
Well, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in today for HEAL. And if you want to find out more information about Dr. Medeiros, please go to his website or you can go to Lime360 to see the show notes from today and also any other articles that we have written about him and the other Lime topics. Thanks again. And please subscribe and review this podcast so other people can find it. Thanks so much. See you next week.